Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class-conscious perspective and to build. I mean, the, the fundamental point is to understand that there is no solution to these problems within capitalism. The answer is socialism. And how do we get socialism? We get socialism by working together, <laughs> uniting our forces for socialism. Um, you know, obviously, every, every issue comes up. Hello, everyone. And um, today we have uh, with us Jyoti. Um, Jyoti is... Uh, from the UK. Um, she's obviously with the CPGBML and the Workers' Party. Um, welcome, Jyoti. Thank you. Mm, okay, and of course, we also have Alex from Australia. Welcome, Alex. Hi. Okay, great, great to have you both on here. So, today we are discussing a couple of topics. Um, we're going to be discussing Corbyn and, of course, uh, what Jyoti has become, I guess, famous for, or uh, <laughs> uh, in some sense. Uh, talking about obviously identity politics and um, the trans discussion. Um, so, if you'd like to open up there, Jyoti, and start about Corbyn. Let's let's start with Corbyn, uh, and I suppose the death of Project Corbyn. Um, so, what what happened to Corbyn in your eyes? Well, really, his being elected as leader of the Labour Party kind of came about by accident. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with um, how the Labour Party leadership elections go, um, but they're basically it's decided um, in the main by the parliamentary party, who which can it's only the parliamentary party which can nominate candidates, and you know they're they're pretty identical the parliamentary Labour Party they're very much in the Blairite mould and they're all pretty much the same, and you know it's this kind of a boring it's a boring election, and so there there was this sort of tradition that each time there was a Labour uh, leadership election, someone or a few people, because they have to have a certain number of nominations, would nominate one of the lefties. Now, we know the Labour Party has to have lefties to make it look like it's the Labour Party, but they sit there and they're the ignored minority on the backbench who put up their hand and say all of the working class positions, or seem to say working class positions, and then get ignored. But, you know, they're there because that's how you justify that Labour's a socialist party or you can get socialism through the Labour Party. They have to exist. So every leadership election you would have some lefty being put on. And basically in 2015, was it? Uh, it was Corbyn's turn and he got nominated. And it was just to make the election a bit more interesting. But the moment when it happened was a moment where there was really such huge discontent amongst the working class, which had been building up for many reasons over several decades. And, um, you know, austerity had kicked in big time by the time of that leadership election. And so the plight of many workers had become drastically worse. You know, we had huge cuts to social services, uh, massive disintegration in people's pay and conditions, in, in public sector pay, in public services, um, and in benefits, you know. So the whole situation for masses of working class people was becoming really untenable. And there's a lot of anger and a lot of frustration and desperation. And suddenly there was this opposition because of the way they sort of changed the rules about who could be a member and who could vote and everything like that, that if people signed up and joined the Labour Party, they could vote for Jeremy Corbyn to be its leader. And they did. A huge wave of kind of socialist enthusiasm because suddenly there was a sense that maybe this was a way to change things. Jeremy Corbyn's known as a man of principle, a man who's always on the workers' side on all the issues. And, you know, if he becomes the leader of the Labour Party, the Labour Party will be a vehicle for socialism. That is the myth that's been peddled to the working class ever since the Second World War. And whether you're a Trotskyite kind of hanger-on or a revisionist type of hanger-on, lots of parties of the left, the so-called you know, communist or socialist left, have followed that as their program and they've pushed this myth into the working class that the Labour Party with the right kind of leadership will bring socialism to Britain. So that was suddenly held up as a possibility 
you can join the Labour Party for a fiver or whatever it was, 25, I don't know, I can't remember, vote for Jeremy. And they did. And he was swept in on a wave of enthusiasm and a massive membership. You know, Labour Party's membership was massively flagging. The working class had abandoned Labour in droves over the previous kind of few decades of deindustrialization and the Blair years and everything else. And, um, you know, suddenly the membership, you know, boomed, ballooned. And um, these people came in on a wave of enthusiasm for, you know, left-wing socialist change in Britain. That's what they wanted to see happen. Um, of course, that isn't what happened. Uh, the mm -hmm. ruling class, the ruling class, was taken aback by this turn of events. Um, but you know, they regrouped and they went in for the attack. And what the followers of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, found was that their leader was not up to the task of leading. Um, you know, he was in a minority in his own party. The institutions of the party were fundamentally against him. You know, the parliamentary party really rules the Labour Party. And, you know, more than three quarters of the parliamentary party was totally hostile to Jeremy Corbyn. He had real problems getting together shadow cabinets. He had to include all kind of people in his shadow cabinet who were opposed mm -hmm. to him and who undermined him and worked against him constantly. Um, but instead of exposing how they behaved to members, instead of instituting mandatory reselection and the kind of things that could uh, enable the membership to take control of the parliamentary party, he simply apologised and compromised every step of the way. And then meanwhile, you had this huge uh, pushback from the ruling class via the media to attack him on every possible front. And on every one of those fronts, instead of yeah. facing up and saying, yes, this is my position or no, that's a lie, he said sorry and backed off or changed his position. So he's supposed to be this great man of principle. But, you know, when it came to, you know, his, his previous positions on things like NATO, on Trident, on mandatory reselection, on yeah. the use of nuclear weapons, on uh, the wars in the Middle East, on support for Venezuela, all these things, when he was put under pressure, he yeah. retreated, he cracked, he U-turned, he changed his position on everything. Mm. The mm. thing that really did for him was U-turning on Brexit. Brexit was voted for by poor, angry, working-class people in Britain who are desperate for something, anything to change, anything except the status quo is pretty much what those people voted for. You know, mm. they voted because they're sick of seeing jobs disappear, you know, and, and life conditions get worse. And the, the, the kind of, um, the, the PR, if you like, the campaign for remaining in the EU basically was a campaign for don't rock the boat, don't change the status quo, it works. Well, for huge swathes of the British population, the status quo doesn't work. Mm -hmm. They know the status quo doesn't work, and it was very much an anti-status quo vote, the Brexit vote. And Jeremy Corbyn, in 2017, at that election in the manifesto, where they came so close and where their own party actually scuppered them from winning that election, mm. you know, Corbyn could have actually become PM, uh, but he was scuppered by his own people. They stopped him from, from, from letting that happen. Um, and in that election, he promised to respect the Brexit vote. He had campaigned for Remain, although all his life he's officially been against the EU. But, you know, he, he did an about face on that. The, the media hounded him because they said he wasn't an enthusiastic campaigner for Remain. You know, he wasn't enough of a spiv or a lackey. But, you know, he campaigned for Remain. But afterwards, he said they respect the vote. And on that basis, won a, a huge vote, actually the, the Labour Party's biggest vote, I think, since the Second World War. It was a it was a big achievement, that vote, because he had a very popular manifesto and he promised to respect the Brexit vote. So the real thing that did for Corbyn was not the huge campaigns of the media that he's this or he's that, because I think a lot of people took all of that with a pinch of salt. They know they know from their experience in life that anti-Semitism is not the form of racism which is dominant in our society or in any of our political parties and certainly not in the Labour Party. So to be honest, that smear campaign could have washed over people's heads if it wasn't for the way 
that he backed off on everything of importance to the working class and in particular backed off on Brexit. And they were they could not forgive him for that. It was fascinating to see the difference in atmosphere uh, and attitude towards Corbyn in 2019 compared to 2017. I was canvassing on the streets uh, in the Midlands for George Galloway, who was standing as an independent in that election in 2019. Mm. And it's a poor working class area where industrial jobs have disappeared. Mm -hmm. And the people there were so angry with Corbyn. I met long-term, you know, lifetime Labour voters who were saying they were going to vote Tory because of Corbyn, because of Brexit. Um, and the, the anger was palpable because he was supposed to be a man of the working class. He was supposed to be a man of principle. And then suddenly he'd come out for a second referendum and basically ditching, ditching the vote. Um, and, you know, people felt that very, very strongly. You know, Brexit, again, Brexit was another thing the working class did by accident. You know, the ruling class, sorry, because... Um, they didn't really want to hold a vote. Um, it sort of happened for party political reasons by accident. And then they didn't intend to lose the vote. They lost it because they missed, they underestimated the strength of feeling amongst the sections of the population they've got used to ignoring. They got used to relying on those people doing as they're told, voting Labour because they always do, because there's no one else for them, you know, and just ex that they sort of their state and they hadn't really counted on how angry those people were or on the fact that a referendum is not like all the other elections the other elections are much easier to manipulate because of the first past the post because of the high entry barriers and all the rest of it a referendum gives you a real opportunity to influence things because every single vote counts that was a huge miscalculation on the part of the ruling class. And it was fascinating to see Ken Clark afterwards, who's a Conservative Party grandee, the father of the House, one of the most experienced Conservative politicians in Parliament, saying, I don't believe in referendums. It's a terrible way to do things. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, from his from the class perspective of the people that he represents, he's absolutely right. Because uh, you can't easily control the outcome. Even with all of your media kind of push, it's very difficult when you can't sort of gerrymander any of it. You know, it's just one person, one vote, and every single vote counts. And that every single vote counts message got through to a lot of people. There was a, quite a big turnout for that Brexit referendum. It was a huge exercise, actually, in democracy. And for a lot of workers, it's the only democratic process they've ever been part of. Most democratic vote I've ever been part of in my lifetime, you know, and I'm, I'm not telling you which birthday I'm heading for now. Um, you know, it it was a big deal, actually. And people really felt um, aggrieved at the way that Parliament then, having, having seen the vote, we then watched Parliament spend three and a half, four years basically staging a sit-in protest, looking right. for, it's supposed to be our elected representatives. And what yes. they're clearly yes. showing is they want to do everything except what they've been elected to do, which was carry out the will of the people, right? Mm -hmm. They're looking for every way possible to scupper the result of the referendum. And when Corbyn allowed himself to be pushed into that campaign, uh, you know, he signed his death warrant, really. A quick one, Jyoti. Um, so you said that one of the big flaws there was with Corbyn was that he was, um, uh, I suppose, not a strong leader, not the golden leader. He he flipped and flopped and changed his mind on things and, and didn't stand for his uh, values that he'd been speaking about for, for decades. Um, had he been uh, more, you know, cast iron, more of a golden leader and stood for his values and stood uh, for Brexit, actually, firmly uh, in favour of, of, of leave, um, do you think he would have won? And if he did win, what do you think uh, the Labour Party would have done? What would have happened in Britain? I think there's every chance he would have been able to become prime minister, despite the fact that most of his party was against him becoming prime minister. Um, most of his parliamentary party, the membership were desperate for him to be prime minister, absolutely desperate. But, right. you know, the grandees of the party and of the Labour establishment, which is totally enmeshed in the establishment of the ruling class and of the country, they were doing everything in their power to scupper it. And they were successful. Um, but I think... It would have been possible for him to have been elected to, to number 10. Now, 
Would that have fundamentally changed anything much? I don't believe it would have done. I think the main thing it would have changed would be people's understanding of what is possible to achieve through elections. Because for so many people, their entire program is get the right person elected as prime minister and then we'll fix the system. And the problem, of course, is, you know, if you have a Marxist understanding of the state, you understand that the prime minister does not dictate the system. The system dictates to the prime minister. And mm. I think Corbyn, Corbyn could have done, as, as prime minister, would have had two options. One is to try and stick to the programme uh, that he was supposed to represent and try and be against wars and against austerity and, and do a bit of redistribution. Um in which case he would have found the civil service and all kinds of organs of the state, the army, going against him. Um, or he would have caved and just done, you know, what the ruling class wanted. And either way, that would have been a good lesson for the working class to see that in process. As it was, we've been left with the second best lesson, which is just to see how the, 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 um, the Labour Party machinery actually made it impossible for Corbyn even to get to that point of getting into number 10, um, mm. as, as well as Corbyn's own weaknesses. But, you know, that's kind of the fact that Corbyn was that kind of guy was kind of why they put him on the ballot paper in the first place. You know, he was not a threatening man. He was someone everybody liked. He's a nice guy, you know, but what he wasn't is a, is a what he is not is the representative of the British working class. You know, mm. <laughs> he has no firm class sense. He has no real steel in his backbone. It's kind of a, a disgrace for someone like that, a nice dude with a bicycle and a vegetable patch, to be put up as the leader of the working class. You know, mm. if, you're, if you're putting yourself forward to be a working class leader, you've got to have some backbone. You've got to be ready to, 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 to stand up, you know, right. for the cause. And, Absolutely. you know, Corbyn wasn't, isn't, doesn't. Right, right, right. Uh, I mean, it is, we've mentioned it briefly, but I will touch on this, uh, FC. This was a big thing, the anti-Semitism discussion. We don't have to spend too much time on it, but um, I mean, is or was Corbyn anti-Semitic or was it just, again, the negligence of not standing for something and not uh, standing up against uh, the accusations? What, what do you think about that? I mean, to me, it's astonishing that anybody with a brain can have any doubt about whether Corbyn is anti-Semitic. It's perfectly clear the guy is not. It's perfectly right. clear that the Labour Party is not, uh, in some weird way, institutionally anti-Semitic or packed with anti-Semitic members. You know, anti-Semitism, I said earlier, is not, in British society today, a huge issue. To the extent that it may be growing in society, it's growing directly as a result of the behaviour of Israel, which constantly claims to act on the part on behalf of all Jews. And so it's not surprising when some people believe that it acts on behalf of all Jews and make the conclusion that the Jews are, you know, somehow to blame for the problems in the world, the Jews, as if the Jews are one lot of people. Well, again, the, the idea that the Jews are one lot of people is an idea pushed both by the Zionists and by the identity politics types. You know, they use mm. the Jewish community. We hear this on the news all the time. The Jewish community say this, and Corbyn genuflects before it, oh, the, I'm sorry for the hurt I've caused to the Jewish community. What kind of BS is that? You should stand up and say, there's no such thing as the Jewish community. There's a whole load of people who, may, who, who are Jewish and may or may not practice that religion, but have been born into Jewish families, um, you know, and... So what? That's not who they are. A religion is not who you are, just like sexuality is not who you are. You know, your community is where you live. <laughs> your community is people that you mix with at work every day, who you interact with. It's not some, you know, kind of little aspect of your culture that you happen to have in common with some other people or certainly not a colour of your skin. You know, it's just a, mis a misuse of the term community, uh, which is used to 
elevate the opinions of some people above the opinions of others. You know, they constantly wheel on, you know, the right kind of Muslim and say he's, he's a spokesperson for the Muslim community or the right kind of Jew. He's a spokesperson for the Jewish community. You know, but all Jews don't agree with the, with the statements that are made by, you know, these reactionary, you know, Zionists about, mm. about Jews. <laughs> you know, it's mm. nonsense. Mm, 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 mm. I was wondering if, uh, if Alex has, has got any questions or anything to, to add for us. Um, yeah, it was just sad watching the <laughs> destruction of Corbyn, really, wasn't it? Because um, he's a decent man, as you say. But yeah, he was far, far too weak. He didn't stand up for these um, for his principles. He didn't stand up. I think it would have been to have done that. Um, and yeah, the, I don't see, uh, you know, all, this, all the Jewish people I know supported Corbyn and there is no sort of institutional anti-Semitism that I can see in the party. Yeah, it's it's just um, of all the things to pin on him, I find that really amazing. Yes, yeah. It's really amazing. Yep. Sorry, I just wanted to add, you really need to see that also in the context of um, the, the drive to criminalise support for Palestine. Um, you know, as, as support for Palestine has grown around the world and become basically the majority opinion, you know, vast masses of people in the world will agree with the statement that Zionism and Israel is racist, that their treatment of the Palestinians is wrong, that the Palestinians should be allowed their homeland back, you know, in whatever form, um, that, that their resistance is just and justified. Uh, and people identify themselves with the Palestinians, not with the Israelis in that conflict. And so the thing is Zionism is the tool of imperialism in the Middle East. They need to keep control of the oil of the Middle East and of the um, of all of the, the nations or the, or the states within the Middle East, and Israel is their tool. Israel is their armed base at the heart of the Middle East, and therefore Israel must be untouchable. And if Israel is losing the moral argument, then the mm. argument has to be silenced. And it was one of the things that made Corbyn so impermissible as a leader of the opposition and a possible future prime minister was the fact that he was associated with Palestine solidarity. Now, his version of Palestine solidarity is a very polite one, which is very acceptable to most of the ruling class. It's just sort of say some things about fairness and peace and justice and, you know, but still, it's not unqualified support for Zionism. And if you want to be the chief executive, the prime minister, for on behalf of British imperialism, unqualified support for Zionism is kind of part of the job description. And so this pushing of the campaign about anti-Semitism, that all support for Palestine is anti-Semitic, um, serves both those purposes. One, to, to knock down Corbyn, but two, to, to push further this idea which had been you know growing for a while with the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which basically says, you know, equates Zionism with Jews and says that if you if you try and say they're not the same, you are anti-Semitic, you know, right. then... Um, I think it's know, so anti-Semitic to say that. Okay. I think it's anti-Semitic to assume that all Jews are um, Zionists, yeah. Well, it absolutely is, I don't, yeah. Don't agree with that, I don't agree with that definition at all. Yeah, I think... I think um, we had, a, obviously, another individual come on the show and discuss... Uh, this definition of Zionism and how it is by nature anti-Semitic too, by saying that only Jews can live in a certain country or their home is a particular country, um, which is, yeah, excluding them from wherever else they live in a sense around the world. Um, so, yeah, I, I think just coming back to the, the Labour Party again, uh, now that Corbyn is gone, uh, well, we don't, I mean, he's, he's been readmitted to the party, then he was kicked out, so it's, it's still an ongoing thing. But, of course, we've got the new leader, um, Keir Starmer, who uh, some individuals have described as, as being wooden. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the new leadership, uh, Jyoti? And is there anything going to happen, anything different? I mean, Keir Starmer is an absolute kind of perfect shoe-in as far as the ruling class is concerned. He's auditioned on his knees 
for that job. You know, he is prepared to absolutely abase himself in any way that's required. He'll do anything to the left of the party that's asked of him. Um, so he is showing his credentials as a man who can sort of present well in a suit, which seems to be like the main thing that imperialists want these days from their leaders. You know, the more that the system is in decline, they've got no one with real serious talent or thought or intellect. What they mainly have is people who can deliver a speech whilst looking quite nice in a sharp suit. You know, from Obama and Blair, you know, on, we, we see this sort of, that's their preferred method of presenting the system, yeah. right? A man who looks good in a suit and says his speeches nicely and drops in a few, you know, little phrases to keep a few people happy and the liberals will go crazy for them, you know. Yeah. But, um, so Starmer is, is one of those. He's a total careerist, as was Blair, Obama. You know, these people who will sell their souls, have no principles, will do what's required, you know, for to get the job. They just want to get paid and they're happy to serve in whatever way. Um, what's interesting to me is that Starmer has been pushed into this position of um, basically hounding out Corbyn and then you know, really instigating a witch hunt of all of the people who joined Labour because they liked Corbyn and what he was supposed to stand for. But in doing so, to me, it seems that the ruling class is actually, uh, they're scoring an own goal because they're destroying the Labour Party as the official party of the working class. Now, of course, you know, from my point of view, Labour Party has never at any point represented the real interests of the working class. The real interests of the working class are for socialism, for to get rid of capitalism and move forward into a socialist society. Labour Party has never represented that. Labour Party was always a party that represented giving a few crumbs of imperialism to some of the workers but keeping imperialism in place, serving the imperialist ruling class and the imperialist system. Labour Party has always done that in all of its guises. At different times, it seemed more or less generous to the working class. It identified more or less with them culturally. But it's in its essence, it served the same purpose. But it had a cloak. The cloak was, before Tony Blair, was Clause 4. And this, this official commitment to nationalising the means of production, distribution and exchange, blah, 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 uh, and words about socialism and singing the red flag at their party conventions and stuff like that, you know, which is a, I'm really happy they dropped that because it's a beautiful song and I'm in favour of reclaiming it for the actual socialist movement. But, you know, they had these, they had these things that they did to appeal to the socialist desires of the masses. And it worked. And the ruling class pushed that idea very strongly amongst the masses. This is your party. This is the working class party. And, you know, through the Blair years, having these lefties on the back bench was really important way of keeping people who have those instincts of, but I want a fairer, nicer, juster, socialist-y sort of society uh, on board keeping them busy trying to elect Labour governments, despite the reality of what Labour governments were actually doing when we had Blair and Brown, how they were kicking the working class and waging war everywhere and, you know, destroying public services and all the rest of it. Um, they were, these, these people in the back benches and these lefty members helped to justify the constant activity of left-wing people and organisations in focusing on electing Labour governments as the panacea for all ills of the working class. And that's been a very important mechanism for the ruling class, keeping social peace, keeping its grip on power. If you destroy the left wing of the Labour Party, what use is the Labour Party to you? I personally, I don't see a function for a Labour Party which is the same as the Liberals, the Greens, the SNP, pretty much the same as the Tories. Like... In terms of social peace, in terms of getting workers to engage with elections, in terms of getting workers to feel that they have a voice, to feel that they have a way or a mechanism for changing things in their favour inside the system. To me, if you take away the left wing of the Labour Party, you tell the working class there is no way through the parliamentary system for you guys to do anything. Because all these people blatantly represent us. Blatantly. The whole point of Labour was it did represent them, but in a kind of disguised way. Now it's right. just 
it's all blatant. Open, open. It feels like an own goal to me. It feels like a really stupid mistake on, on, on the part of the ruling class to, to push so hard. They could have left Jeremy to just sit on the back bench and go into retirement. You know, and they could have left his members in there. They're all there's so many of them still deluded with the stay and fight, stay and fight. We can still change things. You know, mm. they, they, they're being kept busy with this constant crusade mm. to find the next Jeremy Corbyn. Hounding them out is totally counterproductive to their agenda. I'm happy about it, but you know, for them, it seems very stupid. I, I guess. Um, I mean, you've already outlined that the Labour Party and its uh, the people in that movement or supporting it um you know it's a doomed project it's it's not legitimate or real socialism or, or, or a real workers movement um so I, I suppose i was going to ask about whether uh there was a, a role played by uh, a liberal identity politics in the collapse of corbyn but perhaps having said what you said perhaps that's not the case so perhaps we'd rather just discuss what role or impact the liberal identity politics is playing in the broader um, working class movement right now, uh, excluding necessarily the, the Corbyn side of things? So I think uh, you can't disconnect uh, the rise of identity politics from the disconnect of uh, many working class people from the Labour Party and from the Corbyn project, or both of which were infused with liberal identity politics and, and Corbyn made no attempt to push back against those. He's always you know, totally accepted uh, all the various premises of identity politics and that, that's that's definitely one of the ways in which, you know, he he accentuated his his uh, sort of separation, if you like, from a, from massive working class people. Um, really, I think you have to see the rise of identity politics alongside the... Um, the degrading of conditions for working people. Um, as industry was being dismantled and destroyed in this country, as public services have been slowly dismantled, as people's conditions of work and life, their pensions, their pay, you know, their security have all become worse, they have endured a situation where the Labour Party, which was supposed to represent their interests, did nothing. The Labour Party enforced all the same attacks as the Tories. So whoever was in power, the working class was getting attacked. Conditions of life were going down, industrial jobs were disappearing, uh, and this agenda was pursued by both parties equally and endorsed by both parties equally. And so in that situation a lot of working class people started to abandon uh, voting, started to abandon support for the Labour Party. Um, and what we had was, you know, internationally, we've, we've, in that period, we had a, a working class movement that was on retreat in terms of the communist movement internationally. You know, revisionism was wreaking havoc in the Soviet Union and leading towards the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, and everything that that brought with it in terms of demoralization of workers and national liberation struggles across the world. And so you have this context in which the working class is retreating as an organized force and into the space that used to be filled by a strong working class communist leadership uh, for workers of all kinds, we had the kind of bourgeois takeover of workers' demands. It was the Soviet Union which blew holes through the, the ideas that formerly were pushed by imperialism that the white Europeans were destined to rule because they're superior, that um, you know peoples in the rest of the world were inferior, some of them not even really fully human. You know, these were the these were the ways that imperialism justified itself openly up until the October Revolution, that men were superior to women and had, you know, bigger, better brains, more able to do complicated things, and women were better sticking to the hearth and the home and sewing and, you know, all the rest of it. And that this, again, this was open. This was open ideology of imperialism until the October Revolution. The October Revolution blew a hole through all of it and made it impossible for the ruling class any longer, really, to 
to say those things openly that previously it had said about its, its superiority, it had to adjust, readjust, make adjustments. And what we've seen since, uh, since the kind of retreat of the communists after the Second World War um, is that where it used to be a socialist, a communist demand, that equality of women, the end of oppression of other nations, the end of racism within our own borders. These were socialist demands because racism is a tool of imperialism. It, it, it justifies imperialist war and it um, divides the population at home. Um, and both those things are very essential to imperialism. You know, sexism or oppression of women is a class question very much bound up in the need for society to have this unpaid labour of women in the home to not pay for something which is actually socially necessary, to not recognise it as socially necessary, but to treat it as a private concern and to leave a huge burden on women of caring uh, and cleaning and cooking and, and, you know, all kinds of household chores, but caring especially, you know, an extra burden is placed on women to care for the elderly, the young, the disabled, you know, on top of whatever work they may or may not be able to do around that. Um, and all of this and the capitalist society is unpaid, unrecognised as socially necessary labour. Uh, and so it's a socialist demand that women should be freed because the way to free them is to socialise a lot of the work that they currently do privately and for free, um, to recognise it as socially necessary work. Uh, and again, you know, to, to end racism, to end the oppression of, of uh, weaker or poorer nations by the imperialist uh, West, you need to get rid of the system of capitalist imperialism. It's not going to happen any other way because it's built into the fabric of the system. So these are class demands. These are demands of the working class. What's happened in the recent decades is those demands have been kind of taken over by bourgeois academia and turned into kind of hollowed out and turned into a, a kind of inverted almost. So we have replaced the need for the class struggle with a battle against words, words in particular, mm. um, and with a kind of oppression hierarchies. You know, this, this, this um, academic transformation of what should be a real struggle of class against class to end the system that perpetuates these inequalities and injustices has become a kind of academic discourse about who is the most oppressed and how are they the most oppressed and what words are the words which uh, really make them make them so oppressed. It's, it's all about words. And, you know, oh, if we put up posters and celebrate Black History Month, and then it becomes also about siloing people ghettoizing people so you know your identity becomes all and everything and your identity is fragmented into a a, a a tiny little silo you know so you're whether you're it's not just even male or female but you know add to male or female what is your um kind of educational background add to that what is your um, racial or ethnic or, you know, whatever background. And it's this and it's this and it's this and it's, and it's, it's putting us into tiny little, cutting us up into ever smaller groups and telling each group that the other group can't possibly understand you. In fact, probably no one can really understand you because your lived experience is only your lived experience and everybody else. <laughs> and, and essentially what it does is turn us into, number one, navel gazers, you know, we're all sort of trying to understand our personal journey in life and how our ethnicity or our gender has affected that. Well, I mean, it's sort of interesting, but it's also irrelevant, right? In terms of the class struggle, I'm interested for myself in my personal journey, but it's, that's, it is not political, right? Politically, I'm a member of the working class movement and that's what matters, you know? But so they, they separate us off and they turn us into navel gazers and then they also turn us into kind of parties of, I mean, really the ultimate aim of it is like that we're all a party of one, you know, that we can't get together until everybody's recognised everybody else's reality. And it, it, it becomes actually as a kind of weird way for the privileged to tell everybody how oppressed they are, you know. You can be a quite, a quite well-off, 
you know, educated young woman who happens to have brown skin and you can walk around shouting at really, really poor, underprivileged people about, you know, their prejudice against you and what a hard time you're having, you know. And uh, it's a brilliant way of dividing the working class um, because those who are educated are the ones who have their heads absolutely filled with this. So if you do A-levels and then even more if you go to university and the longer that you stay in the university system, the more of it you get, it's absolutely just, it's non-negotiable now. It sort of happened while my back was turned, I have to say. It wasn't the case when I went to university in 1990, but somewhere in the intervening period, it's become absolutely non-negotiable, this identity politics, um, you know, hierarchies of pain and uh, policing of language. And all of these things serve to separate more privileged workers from less privileged workers and set them against one another. It creates a huge cultural divide and what it does is get workers essentially in their silos fighting one another. And, and you really have a, have a, it's not an accident, you know. It's come in where working class, where true socialist working class leadership has been in retreat. It's come in and filled that space. And nationalism has done the same, you know. In, in Scotland, in Wales, where the Labour Party was in retreat, you know, the nationalist parties would jumped in. And it's not an accident. These types of philosophies are the ones which get all of the press. They're the ones that get all the media coverage. They're pushed. These debates, these antagonisms, these dichotomies are pushed from both directions constantly in the media to keep us all, you know, like cats in a sack. You know, everybody's fighting everybody. Um, and it's really about preventing working class unity. You know, 100 years ago, when the ruling class was in a huge bind uh, with the Great Depression, the Soviet Union was on the rise, and in every country there was strong, united, working-class leadership of communists against the system to help workers to understand what the problem was and what the solution was. And it put the fear of God into the ruling class. At the end of the Second World War, you know, it's, it's only because of America's input that most of Western Europe didn't go communist at the end of the Second World War. It was the communists that gave all of the anti-fascist resistance leadership. Uh, it was they who had been, you know, true in their analysis and their leadership through the 30s as well as through the war. Um, they came out on top. The Soviet Union came out with so much prestige from defeating what was supposed to be an undefeatable machine. It was only American money that propped up American imperial, uh, uh, European imperialism and allowed it to sort of recover. Um, mm -hmm. And identity politics, you know, today we have a similar situation in terms of the, the mess that imperialism's in and the crisis that it's facing. But the, the retreat of the working class movement means that there isn't a good, strong, organized opposition to lead the working class and defense. You know, the working class is in a really poor state compared to what it was a hundred years ago during the Great Depression in terms of its organization, its orientation, its ability to unite. And you, uh, identity politics has played a huge role in that disunity. Mm. So just, just a, a quick one. Um, how, how should a, a working class movement um, really then uh, navigate? Because I mean, there are obviously things that we can think of, um, you know, violence against women, um, uh, things like Black Lives Matter, obviously police brutality in the U.S. particularly, which affects uh, certain sections of the working class. And there is a, obviously, you know, violence against women does affect uh, working class women. Um, and then, you know, police killing and police brutality in the U.S. does affect disproportionately more black uh, working class people. So what should a working class movement do? to sort of um, acknowledge or, or realize these differences or deal with them or these, um, these, these uh, imbalances, I suppose? I mean, this, the fundamental point is to understand that there is no solution to these problems within capitalism. The answer is socialism. And how do we get socialism? We get socialism by working together, <laughs> uniting our forces for socialism. Um, you know, obviously, every... Every issue that comes up in life needs to be a way for us to show workers that this system is not fit for purpose. You know, the fact that the state machine um, turns its uh, wrath more harshly on black people, deliberately so as to 
create and perpetuate divisions amongst the population that there that some sections are sat on more heavily than other sections and that the media justifies this and that creates division amongst the workers it is every workers in every worker's interest and therefore should be every worker's demand for that to stop it is not in our interest to have tears within the working class population of of privilege because that helps the system to maintain which is against all of our interests you know it is anti-racism is is in the interests of white people too it's not simply a question of solidarity of fellow feeling although of course we have fellow feeling we are human beings but it's not simply a question of altruistic fellow feeling it's against our interest that the workers should be divided in this way we all need to stand up together against it it's not a private grief of the black people if they're being treated badly by the state and we just sit on the side and go oh well I'm glad it's not me you know that's that's not the case if you if you view it from a proper class perspective it makes no sense to allow these divisions to to fester and, and perpetuate and you know the same the same with you know when it comes to violence towards women yes you know that is a that is endemic in our society because of thousands and thousands of years of the oppression of women uh women have been the designated punch bags for frustrated men for a very long time but that doesn't mean that men are the enemy or men are inherently bad or wrong that means class society is the problem and we have to work together men and women together to remove class society there isn't another way mm. so obviously we're bordering on the sort of um, of the gender question the sex question you obviously the, the oppression of women um and obviously within the trans discussion or trans discussion um where where does this sit within this is this a part of the broader liberal identity politics element or is it somewhere else is it uh, far uh, is it is it so deep that it's become its its own thing what what are your thoughts on that for me it's a kind of absurd apotheosis if you like of identity politics this we've ultimately ended in this idea that you are what you think you are and that it is hate speech to say that that might not be the case now it's always important here to to distinguish between movements and individuals um you know you sent me some questions thinking about the trans situation about individual cases and i, I would never comment on an individual case because i don't know those individual people and i don't know their individual situation I recognize as anybody does that there is a tiny 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 percentage of the population who are born with some kind of abnormality of their chromosomes or their genitalia which causes them great problems in life and which we are now in a position to start to treat in various ways whether they're surgical or hormonal or whatever and whatever treatment is appropriate for those people I think they should get it but that has almost that has been used as a piggyback as a as a justification for something which is entirely separate um and those people's situation has really been used and abused by two different lobbies and one of them is the identity politics brigade uh it's a perfect diversion it's a perfect way to tell people who feel and particularly young people who feel uncomfortable with the the very gendered roles that are being pushed on us again um in society today who feel uncomfortable with that who are uncomfortable with many ways about how our society is going um who are alienated fragmented isolated unhappy unhealthy um that ill health manifests in many many ways and to me gender dysphoria is a social problem but it also manifests in the individual as a mental health problem uh it is the sense that you feel so uncomfortable and so alienated by life and all the pressures around you that you 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 feel that somehow you're not you're not happy in your body and the problem is that alongside this feeling you now have a lobby of people and really it's like a it's a 
it's like an extension of big pharma, big surgery. I don't know. The, the, the privatized health machinery, particularly in the United States, where, of course, these things always come out of, that has realized the potential of this market. And so a lot of the transgender ideology which is pushed is essentially you have to see it as a marketing campaign for these people to sell their services. They are telling people that this anxiety they feel, the discomfort they feel, the social alienation they feel is not a social problem, it's their personal problem. And they must solve this problem by changing themselves. And it's being pushed in a way that nobody's allowed to question it. To just ask simple questions or state simple facts becomes hate speech, becomes... Uh, well, it's something that people are not allowed to do and it can lose you your job. You, it can lose you access to council services, health services, housing. You know, it's becoming something where people are terrified to speak up, even though what's being done is essentially, as far as young people are concerned, child abuse. And as far as everybody else is concerned, abuse of the mentally ill. You know, they create an epidemic of social anxiety and, and mental illness, and then the treatment, the cure is worse than the disease. You know, this a lifetime of, of surgeries and uh, drugs which cause irreparable damage to the body uh, is being pushed on people as a solution for the fact that they basically feel a massive social anxiety and can't, can't quite feel happy in themselves. <coughs> Mm. Mm. So just to just to clarify on some things, so you you think that there is a um, um, a section, as you said, of of people that have um, a, a different spread of chromosome or um, uh, have gender dysphoria and should be treated medically in some form, and there is a medical case there, is a medical discussion there, but um, the movement is the the problem. There's an ideological element, obviously tied with identity politics, and there's the pharmaceutical. Um, seek a profit, which is then fusing the two or bouncing between the two and creating the, the hype, the, uh, the stuff we see out there on Twitter and elsewhere. Yeah, and social media is massively fueling it, you know, because you imagine you're a, you're a young girl, say, for example, and you're just approaching puberty and you start to feel incredibly uncomfortable in your body, nervous about the changes which are coming up. Uh, so locked into social media, which shows you, you know, images of, of sex and violence, which are totally inappropriate to your age, but plenty of 13 year olds see them all the time. That's the world they're growing up in. That makes you feel even more anxious about the idea of, of sex and sexuality, of maturity, of what is about to happen to you. And all of these anxieties, you know, can then be, you, you then get exposed to this idea that um, you your sexuality and your uh, identity is something that you should have decided already. You know, now, so you're 13, you haven't even started your periods yet, but your hormones have kicked in and you're starting to feel those changes in your body and it's scary and it's uncomfortable. And it's normal for kids that age to feel unsure and nervous about what's to come, um, but they're being hawked an idea that, that nervousness is something that proves they're in the wrong body, that proves that they must be gay or they must be uh, trans or they must be this or they must be that, that they should know their identity when they're so young. And of course, you don't know your identity when you're so young. In fact, who you sleep with is not an identity, in my view. It's an irrelevance. It's a, it's a side issue. It's not who you are you know, who you happen to, to sleep with. It, it has nothing to do with who you are, but this, this sort of equalizing of identity with sexual preference and then extending it to, to this kind of whole identity, uh, a, a transgender question where, you know, you're told that if you feel slightly uncomfortable with any aspect of your gender, whether it's social or physical, it's proof that you need treatment rather than that you're just going through natural puberty changes and, you know, you'll, you'll get through it and come out the other side. Mm -hmm. Alex has got any thoughts on this, any contributions? 
Oh, okay. I think we've lost Alex actually. So I'll try to bring a big bird later. That's okay. Um, yeah. Uh, and so if we think about then what a workers' movement or a class conscious body, a uh, communist party, should do um, to organize, and particularly in the UK, what, what, what should um, communists be doing? What should uh, class conscious workers be doing? What we need to do is, is unite around a socialist program. Uh, uniting people around the recognition that capitalism has to go and socialism has to be built. Um, recognizing that the needs of the workers must be paramount. We need a society that can fulfill our requirements and give us a decent and secure existence where our work benefits everybody rather than, you know, the wealth that we produce being uh, used to just line the pockets of a ever-decreasing number of uber-rich capitalists. Um, and that means there's certain things we have to stand up against. We have to, we have to stand up for material reality and against the kind of identity politics that says that what you are is in your head. You know, Marxist socialists recognize reality. We recognize biological facts. We recognize physical facts. We recognize class struggle. We recognize that the, the barrier to socialism is not an electoral barrier. It's a class barrier. And it's a class struggle that's needed. So what we need to do is build an organisation that has class consciousness at its heart and class unity at its heart. We need to learn to wage economic and political struggles as a class for our class interests. The working class needs to remember that it is a class and stop fighting itself on all these you know, tiny little fracture lines. <laughs> and... I just wanted to do something you said earlier. Um, what workers' movements or uh, communist parties uh, around the world, or necessarily any example you can give, that have actually successfully dispelled IDPOL and our identity politics and are, are, are building what you're talking about in a very effective way? Hmm, interesting. Uh, I don't know too much about um, how other other countries are managing with this challenge. I know it's it, it's popping up everywhere. It popped up first in the States, and I, I, I don't think the working class movement there has done very well. Most of it seems to have succumbed uh, very much to identity politics and to the transgender ideology. Um, it hasn't put up much resistance, and as a result is becoming ever more um, detached from the working class. In Britain all I can really talk about with any experience. Uh, our party, the, the Communist Party in Britain, although we are a tiny party, um, we were forced to take on the issue of identity politics and the transgender ideology at our last Congress. And actually that stood us in very good stead because before that it wasn't something we would have been terribly interested in. You know, as Marxists, we just saw it all as a bit silly and, and didn't pay any attention and didn't quite realise how much of a hold it had taken on the younger generation. And we were forced to, to think about it, to write about it, to debate about it. We've produced a, a, a pamphlet. There's another one on the way um, on the topic. And it's given us a kind of basis for going forwards uh, and, and building stronger because we understand better the, the problem and the ideology that's being forced on our younger generations. And that also enabled us that when we um, set up alongside others, the Workers' Party of Britain, it was on a common understanding that we need class politics, not identity politics. And so the great advantage the Workers' Party had in hitting the ground was it was, it was from the start recognizing the importance of defending socialism wherever it does or has existed. Um, so definitely not being a kind of welcome place for Trotskyites to come and try and jump in and, and start spreading all kinds of misinformation. And on the other hand, to firmly oppose identity politics as something which divides the working class and is absolutely anathema to our aims of bringing workers together. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have Alex back with us. I don't know if you wanted to add anything, Alex, I'm not sure <laughs> when we lost you. Sorry about that. I missed a bit. Um, yeah, I think it's really destructive for the working class uh, identity politics and it has made inroads here as well. You know, some people think if you don't have trans right, rights at the centre of your ac- activism, you're not really a communist and things like that. And there's a lot of people on social media with a little hammer and sickle in their bios and things like that. It's... Um, it's it's uh, really disconcerting to see it because um, it really un- undermines uh, class solidarity, I think, more than anything. You know, in the past, you know, in the communist parties, we've had people who are religious, um, but that never seemed to be a problem. Um, you know, that was a personal matter because um, communist parties generally are materialist-based and, and, you know, don't, go for the religious side of things. But if people are religious, um, have family connections and what have you, that's always been been fine. But um, just sort of don't bring it to the party sort of thing and don't let it interrupt your uh, activism and your party work. Um, and that's been like that. But the identity politics, this kind of identity politics is quite um, quite a different matter altogether. It's related, you know, for me it's postmodernism. It's not... Um, it's not uh, class-based at all. Um, Mm -hmm. It's very distracting and destructive, I think, of class solidarity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess we are reaching the the close of our discussion, so I I just wanted to give Jodi an opportunity to have any final thoughts Uh, and, of course, to yourself as well, Alex, and then uh, we'll we'll close after that. So uh, final thoughts from yourself there, Jodi. Thanks very much, Rich. Yeah, I mean, I would totally agree with uh, Alex that um, it is it is very destructive. It is it is totally um, rooted in postmodernism, eclecticism, uh, anti-materialist, uh, idealist at its very core. You know, I think, therefore, I am. I feel what I am. It's not. You know, it, it turns the world on its head, uh, and it's not an accident to push this kind of nonsense at the working class because if you get them to accept uh, idealist philosophy, you are essentially uprooting Marxism. Marxism, scientific socialism, is the weapon of the working class against capitalism. The capitalists, I think, understand that better than we do. You know, we are, as a class, very bad at defending Marxism from the attacks of the, of the ruling class. You know, we retreat before those attacks, we apologize, we, we compromise. But the reality is that Marxism is the highest achievement so far of human science. It synthesized human knowledge and took it to a whole new plane. And in field after field, the, once Marxism came onto the scene, the ruling class has had to bury science and replace it with voodoo in order to keep their system going. And we allow them to do that. You know, the working class, if they took Marxism to their hearts, they would not be able to be manipulated in the way that they are manipulated uh, by the ruling classes, press, propaganda, ideology, philosophy, you know, because when you understand the system, when you understand materialist philosophy, when you understand scientific socialism, you can see straight through it all. And this is why such efforts are made to separate Marxism from the masses. And this is the job of socialists. The job of socialists is not to look at our navels and and work out who's more oppressed than who. The job of socialists is not to stand and jump up and down for the rights of every individual. The job of socialists is to connect the mass of the working class with Marxism, its weapon for liberation, and help the workers to make the socialist revolution. And the idea that our job is to be an equal rights brigade within capitalism is a capitalist (laughs) idea that we need to resist. It's not, it's a perversion of our movement. It's a distortion. It's a, it's an inversion of what we're all about. We're not here to fix capitalism. Capitalism can't be fixed. We're here to help the workers understand that capitalism can't be fixed, help them understand why that is, help them see what the solution is and help them to get there. And that means understanding and studying Marxism ourselves 
and then disseminating it in such a way that the workers take it to the hearts, take it as their own, and learn how to use it. Mm. Mm. Brilliant. Beautiful. <laughs> Great. Always good to hear your, your, your words on these things, Jyoti. Um, Alex, do you have any final thoughts to add? Oh, no, I just totally agree with what um, Jody said too. Um, can't say it any better. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, better. I don't can't fix capitalism, and 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 Marxism is the uh, solution. Absolutely. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure for having uh, both of you, Alex and Jody. Thank you very much for for joining us, and uh, perhaps we'll have you all again on in the future to discuss something else. Happy Great. to be with you, Oscar. Thanks Thank a lot. Okay, thank you very much. And that is it for this episode of the Marxist Think Tank. Catch us every other week here on SoundCloud. To allow us for our reporting and our content to remain independent, please consider donating to our Patreon and becoming a voting member in the link down below in the description. If you have a news tip or would like to talk to us, please email admin at marxistthinktank.org. Our editor is Sean Sanchez. News writer and producer is Reggie Truman. And I'm Oscar Bastille. Thank you for listening.